So here in Acts 27, and then we're going to read down to, the, uh, to verse 10 of chapter 28, uh, Paul uh, on his way from Jerusalem and then Caesarea and uh, here now on his way to Rome. So chapter 27 at verse number 1. Here is what the Lord says to us this morning and as we have just prayed, ask the Holy Spirit to come upon us to understand and know uh, the word of the Lord. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a, uh, in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to, set, about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends. That's a Christian uh, term in in the ancient world of of a Christian, so friends or Christians, and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion, Julius, found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the, under the lee of Crete off uh, Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, it's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, They used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. 
for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. We must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, that's the, the lifeboat that is, under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing, nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lighted the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made to the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan, He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, when we then learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice, the god, goddess Justice, DK, has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when he had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place, what a little great little phrase, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. 
they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And to all these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Texts like this have often perplexed pastors on how to preach them. I hope you're asking the same question this morning. What is he going to get out of this? Right? What's he going to squeeze out of this narrative of a shipwreck? On the one hand, one, one way that we could go this morning uh, is to turn this into uh, somewhat of a character study and and I can say to you something like, you know, there's, there's not a lot about God here in our story, but look at how calm Paul is in the storm. Let's be calm too. On the other hand, we might think that's not really suitable. That's not really saying much. We can, we can get that out of, you know, we can read that at home on our own at, at the dinner table and tell our kids that. We don't need a pastor to tell us that. On the other hand, we can turn to allegory and uh, not wanting to preach a man-centered sermon, you know, dare to be like Daniel, be as calm as Paul, we might turn to an allegorical way. And uh, here's how one, how one writer describes this text in a very allegorical way. He says this, The ship is the visible church on earth, which, after setting out on its voyage from Jerusalem on the pristine day of Pentecost, has undergone a history of the winds of false doctrine and the storm of persecution, culminating in the shipwreck of becoming the Roman Catholic Church. While journeying, the ship, the visible church, is a mixed multitude. Some resemble the, uh, the centurion who believed the captain of the ship, church, church leaders, while others listen to Paul and cast the wheat into the sea, which is the spreading of the gospel far and wide. So we can do that too. And I can plug in something interesting about every little detail here and try to make some allegorical sense of it. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Close it up and go home? Are we done? My kids think we're done. Okay, are we done? (laughs) I believe that we're supposed to see in these historical narratives, just like in the Old Testament, here in the New Testament, the providence of God in the personal lives of his people. The providence of God in the personal lives of his people. The providence of God, of course, as we all know from from our catechism, our teaching as as, as a Christian church here, it's that almighty and ever-present power of God. The God who has spoken all things into existence, our creator. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator or maker of the heavens and the earth. That same God, who is almighty and who is ever-present, so he's omnipotent and he's uh, omnipresent, he's also omniscient, he knows all things. That same God who has made everything in, in the past, he's upholding, as it were, by his very own hand, the heavens, the earth, and all the creatures that fill them. So that nothing comes to us, the believer especially, nothing comes to us, but to all things. Nothing comes by chance, or randomness, or happenstance, or that's just the way things work. No, all things come to us by the fatherly hand of God. And we see that here. The providence, the, the power, the almighty and the ever-present power of God in the lives of his people. Paul uh, and others here, Aristarchus, a believer, and even the unbelievers in the ship too. And so it's in that theological context or that mindset that we come to our text this morning, uh, and we actually can learn from Paul's example 
in such dire circumstances because God is in the story most of all. And so Paul is shipwrecked here along with those on the ship, the 275 others. They're shipwrecked, but Paul's not downcast. Why? Why? Well, first of all, we we recognize here in the story, and and Paul no doubt did too, and we've seen this throughout many of the texts so far, uh, or up to this point in the book of Acts, that history, what we call history, uh, it's the outworking of the providence of God. The providential plan, the purpose of God for everything. God has spoken it all into existence. He didn't just leave it. God didn't just make all the laws of nature and creation and then just let it all sort of settle itself down. No, God is working out an eternal purpose and plan, we call that as providence, through human history. And we see that here. Well, how, how do we see that? Well, as you read that story, as we read that story, and as, as you're looking down at it, well, what sticks out most to you today? What sticks out most? Probably the snake, right? Biting, biting his hand. <laughs> Besides the snake biting Paul's hand and Paul not dying. What sticks out to you most? The sailors are preserved. Okay, interesting, interesting. What else? The, an angel of God appears, right? Pretty powerful. We'll come to that in just a minute. Uh, just a minute. What, what sticks out? What else? There's a, there's a storm, right? There's a ship. It's not what? <laughs> yeah, it ain't, it ain't easy, right? So. Yeah, there's good, there's bad stuff, right? God is still alive and God's on the throne. Uh, now, we're all grasping here for something like, you know, I've got to impress Pastor Danny. You know, I've got I to gotta say something really interesting. The thing that should stick out to you is how boring the text is. Can I say it that way? It's really boring. It's ordinary. It's normal. The stuff that sticks out are all the details. All the details. Notice this. There are real people here. There are real people here. There's a centurion, verse 1 tells us. Uh, his name is Julius. He's from this Augustan cohort. Uh, and these would have been mostly Syria, what, what, they, what they called the, the province of Syria. And today it's Syria as well. But uh, north and a little bit west and a little bit east of the promised land. Uh, these would have been uh, Caesar soldiers uh, on call there uh, in the far east of the Roman Empire. So uh, this Julius is, from a, uh, is a real person. He's a centurion. He's in charge of uh, not 100, but 80 uh, Roman legionnaires. Uh, from this Augustine, Augustine, because that's, the, that's the, the title of Caesar, Augustus. He's the exalted one. He's God. Uh, this Augustine cohort. So they're real people here. Real people. Uh, there's also this man we've, always, we've seen him before as well, Aristarchus. He was a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and he's, Paul, he's followed Paul in, in his travels all the way up to this point. So there are real people here, right? Just notice that, the details, real people. There is a real, there are, there are more than one, there's, there are real ships here, real ships. At the end of the story, when the, when the, when the, when the, when the shipwreck happens, some jump overboard and they you know, wade their way, doggy paddle their way to the shore, and so forth. Others are clinging on to what again? Planks. Was there real wood that made up a real ship? Yes, you got, you got your life there was. There were no life vests. No, no life, uh, uh, there was no oxygen tank that came down, right, as the plane was making its way. There was no uh, flotation device under your seat and that kind of thing. You just grabbed whatever you could grab, and hopefully it floated, uh, because most people couldn't swim. So there are real ships here. One of them is from the port of Adramidium, which is north of Ephesus, and 
Uh, it's, on, it's been on its way all across the Mediterranean, and they, and they meet it here uh, in uh, the Promised Land or in, around Caesarea. Uh, they set sail to go along on those real ships to the, along the coast to Asia, verse 2. Notice there are real places here. Sidon, verse 3. Uh, they travel under uh, the cover of the island of Cyprus because the winds were too strong in their face, and so they had to travel along uh, the northeastern side of Cyprus to get them some momentum and to keep them away from so much of the wind. And they made their way then up to what was then uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia. Today it's the far southeast coast of Turkey. Uh, and they made their way to Myra in Lycia, verse, four, uh, verse 5, that is. Notice they boarded a very large ship of Alexandria. Now the Roman Empire was dependent upon Egypt's from its earliest inception, when they uh, defeated the Ptolemies and took over uh, the Egyptian uh, empire and became part of the Roman Empire, how do you think the Romans could eat every single day? Every single day there were ships traveling from Alexandria all the way across the Mediterranean to Rome. What were they delivering? What did they throw out of the ship at the very end of our story today? Wheat. The Romans would starve to death unless they got food from Egypt. And so the port in Alexandria, built by Alexander the Great, uh, was traveling there across the Mediterranean, and they just happened to find that grain ship uh, there, and so they, they boarded that large ship on its way for Italy. It's full of grain to feed the Romans. There were up and upwards of a million people living in Rome uh, in the first century. They sail very slowly, and we have these names of places that we may not know about. There's this little island of Canitis, which is about a hundred and so miles south of Ephesus, which is the very far western tip of of, uh, uh, of Asia Minor or Turkey. So they're, and they're trying to get underneath or on top of the mountain, uh, uh, of the, the islands, because of the, the winds flowing off the mountains of these islands to be protected. They come to Crete, another island. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a port, a place, called, a place called Fair, the Fair Havens. That's even around today, the south of the island of Crete uh, and so forth. So there are real people here. There are real ships made of real wood, real names and real places that really existed and really still do exist. Uh, these are happening in real time, in real space, in real history. Notice uh, that, that Luke, our narrator, tells us that they are on uh, the sea for many days, and at the very end they've been there for two weeks in a great storm. Now, they couldn't... Uh, Paul said it was not, uh, not a very smart thing to, to, uh, to port for the winter... Uh, in this particular place, because the fast had already taken place. Luke knows the times and the places and the history. The fast is Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. That's the one day a year where the high priest would go into the, into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the, on the altar uh, and make atonement for the people of God. Now, this is sometime around September, October, so late in the fall. Uh, and so the storms are beginning uh, to brew, and, and uh, it's, it's much more dangerous uh, to sail at this time throughout the Mediterranean. So Luke's aware of this. He's aware of this in real time. They're, re- they're a real destination they're making their way to. They didn't know the name of it. They come to find out, chapter, one, uh, chapter 28, verse 1, that they traveled to the island of Malta. And again, there are real people on that island. The chief man, is, his name is Publius, uh, he's a, he's, he has a Roman name, a Latin name, so he's a, he's a very influential, probably a retired soldier, centurion, some politician who's taken up residence uh, uh, on the island there. 
uh, and he, and he uh, entertains them and cares for them for about three days or so. So what all of this should impress us with, all the ordinariness of it should impress us with, is that we're reading an historical account. What should impress us is, again, the ordinariness, the basicness, the, I like to say, the, the Rick Steves of the story, right? It's just, you're traveling from this place into that place, right? The, the Hulhauser, sorry for the Californians, right? The Hulhauser of, of the ancient world here. It's an historical account. It's an historical account. What did Paul tell uh, King Herod Agrippa II last, uh, we heard this last Sunday, uh, in chapter 26, what did he tell them when he was boldly proclaiming his hope in the resurrection to the king? And uh, he was telling him why he was hopeful and, expect, uh, and expectant that the king was going to believe. All these things happened. What did he say again? The, the story of the gospel of Jesus? Well, sure, they said he was out of his mind. But he said that these things didn't happen in a corner. Look at chapter 26 again, verse number 26. He says, uh, For I am persuaded that none of these things, speaking of the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and resurrection, none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Why is that important? Our story is describing real people, real events, real places, real time, uh, real details that were known by a real narrator who wrote with real ink on a real scroll, yet under the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. None of the events of Scripture happened in a corner. And I mentioned last Sunday that that's very important for us as Christians, uh, that the Christian faith uh, is a falsifiable religion. That's why we have for 2,000 years taken all comers and all of their objections and all of their uh, trying to show us how our, how our narratives are false and they've been corrupted. They're just myths. They borrow from you know, ancient mythology and so forth. Or these things really didn't happen the way that you say they did. No, the Christian faith is a falsifiable religion. And I mentioned Islam, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, Buddhism. These are the religions of one person. How can you falsify what Muhammad claimed to have happened to him? How can we falsify, how can we really test whether or not Joseph Smith really looked into a hat and saw golden stones? You can't. They don't exist anymore. You, you, we just don't have a, the ability to do that. How can, we, how can we know whether or not the Buddha was uh, really experienced uh, enlightenment as he said he did? It was one man claiming this. How do we really know that Ellen G. White was a prophetess or, or not? Well, we, we can test her prophecies because they, they've, they've been false. But these are the religions of one person. And when one person has a, re a revelation or an experience or some religious thing, and they go on to claim to others that what they've seen is now for you, and then people accept that, there's no way to really falsify that. You can't test it. You can't see it. Is it really credible? Did it really happen that way? It's interesting that over the history of uh, uh, the Muslim world, for example, there have been times and places where uh, uh, certain sultans have gathered up uh, various copies of the Quran and burned them all except for one. Because they all contradicted one another. But this one is the official version, they were told. These are historical things. These are historical things. We know that this happened sometime, as I mentioned, sometime around September, October of the year 59, uh, A.D., 
uh, based on solar calendars because the fast that year, the Day of Atonement, uh, happened in that month. And this is the month of storms, uh, months of storms in the ancient world. And so these places really were there. Uh, these were really uh, real historical events. The Christian faith stands or falls on its historicity. Jesus rose from the dead. It didn't just happen in a corner. They wanted to say that these things happened in a corner. Go out and say that they say he was raised up, but really they, they took him out of the tomb at night and they, and they hid his body away, and now the tomb just looks empty. Go tell everybody that, that they took his body away at night. That's the story they tried to pass on in the Gospel of, Mar, uh, Gospel of Matthew, that is. No, these things happened. These things happened. But it's more than just mere history, this story here. Again, this is the history of the Lord's work. History is the history of what God is doing or, or permitting and allowing to happen. It's the history of the Lord's work. Recall back in chapter 23 where the Lord stood by Paul and promised him this in chapter 23, verse 11. You must testify also in Rome. You must testify also in Rome. He wanted to go from Ephesus. He wanted to get to Jerusalem. They said, don't go. He said, no, I must go. But I also know that God has said that I'm going to go from there all the way back to Rome. So God has told him, you must testify in Rome. And so everything else that happens in between, it's God's way of getting him there. Two times they try to conspire to murder him. Humanly speaking, that's what they try to do. From God's point of view, we know that that couldn't happen. Because God has said to him, Christ has said to him, that you must testify also in Rome. God's providence is over all things. History, sometimes we say, is his, the Lord's story. As Paul himself said back in chapter 17, it's God who determines the places and the times of civilizations, the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings. It's all God's work. It's all God's work. And we see that here too. And because that's true, because God in human history orchestrated Paul's life, and not just the good, but also the bad, and these things really happen, they're real historical texts, we can then ask the question, well, what can happen in your life? What can happen in my life? That's not a part of the plan. What can befall me that's random? What happened to me this week that was just chance? What might happen to me tomorrow that is just sort of happenstance? You know, what can I do tomorrow that is not in the, quote-unquote, in the will of God? Is there anything? Is there anything that can happen to you, believer, that God is not a part of? That God is not orchestrating some way, somehow, even the evil, he's working it out all for your good? Is there anything? Did the shipwreck happen because the devil made it happen? Did it happen because Paul wasn't living in God's will? Is the shipwreck also part of God's plan for his life? God has a wonderful plan for your life, we're told. Yes. And sometimes that wonderful plan includes shipwrecks. Includes floating on planks, getting bit by snakes, and so forth. The Lord is writing his own story 
through Paul's life. And you and I, too, are characters in that story of the Lord. So why is Paul confident? He's shipwrecked, but he's not downcast. Why not? Because he knows and because we see that history is the working out of God's perfect providential plan and purpose for all things. And that leads to a second reason why he's confident, why he's not downcast. It's not just that big thing, but also the little things. Because God is in control of his life. The Lord is the Lord of all history. That's point one. But that same God who made the heavens and the earth and who upholds everything, the Lord of history, is Paul's Lord. He's your and my Lord and Savior. He controls our particular lives. It's one thing for us to say these things because we can say, sort of looking, looking at it from a distance, and we can, we can say, you know, God's providence is over everything, and God works out everything for good, and so forth. But we can say those things that kind of distance ourselves and hide ourselves from pain and from struggle and agony of real life. But then we learn as well that that big idea is also true for you. That you have to be able to say, for you, particular Christian, friends, even unbeliever today, you have to be able to say, it's not just these big things are true theoretically, but they're true for me. They're true for me. That the God who is almighty and everywhere present, who upholds everything by the very will of it and uh, the will and power of his words, that this God also upholds my life and controls me too. The Lord of history is Paul's Lord. He's our Lord. Put all the details here in our story in perspective. Again, why is Paul even here? Why is he on a ship and then he gets on another ship? Why is he on a ship, in a shipwreck? Why is he then uh, stranded or marooned on a desert island somewhere, Malta? Why is he here in the first place? Remember the story of, uh, of Acts that his goal was to leave Ephesus. And we, we saw that if we go back a few chapters. We saw that in chapter number 19. He's there in Ephesus. His goal was to get to Jerusalem before the Feast of Pentecost to bring to the Christians in, in Judea and Jerusalem an offering of money that the Gentile church, the mostly Gentile churches throughout Asia Minor and the, and the Roman world, had taken to help their fellow brothers and sisters because there was a famine in the land. Just like in the Old Testament, we read about famines in the land. Paul responded with taking up collections and offerings for the saints in Judea. So he wanted to get to Jerusalem to bring that offering. But then his goal was to go straight back across the Mediterranean. He wanted to get to Rome to preach the gospel there. Read Romans chapter 1. His desire was to come to Rome in person to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He wanted to participate in the ministry of the gospel. He wanted to serve and preach and do good deeds as well as give good words. Instead, what happened to him? So he had this great and grand plan. I'm going to take all this money from the Gentiles. I'm going to bring it to the Jews. I'm going to show the church of Jesus Christ as one unified body. And then I'm going to travel nice and peacefully across the sea to Rome, preach the gospel, and there, that's all she wrote. Oh, and actually, he wanted to go to, to, go to Hispania. He wanted to go to, to Spain. 
But what actually happened? What actually happened? Arrested falsely at Jerusalem. Put on trial five times. That's the last five sermons we've looked at. Five different trials. Falsely imprisoned for two long years because the governor wanted to do the Jews a favor and wasn't man enough to let him go even though he had done nothing wrong. Twice he was almost assassinated by a mob. Now he's shipwrecked. God had a wonderful plan for his life, didn't he? So he had these great intentions. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to preach. I'm going to save sinners. I'm going to build up churches. I'm going to go to places that haven't heard the gospel yet. I'm going to bring the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, as Jesus told us to do. But God had other plans. Now, that plan of Paul was a part of God's plan, but God had other ways to get him there. Look at chapter 27, verse 20. Did you catch that when I was reading that? So back in our text, verse number 20. This is Luke writing, the narrator, the gospel writer. Luke says this, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. That's, that's how they knew where they were going. They could see the sun, the sunset, the sunrise, the stars. They could chart it all out. They knew exactly where they were going. That's why they didn't even know the name of the island was Malta. They had no idea where they were at. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And no small tempest, that's what's called a litetes in, in literature. It's a stating something, something by stating its negative. No small tempest, meaning it's a huge storm, right? It's category five almost. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's how serious it was for Luke, for Paul, for Aristarchus, the believers, and everyone else. That's how serious it was. They had lost all hope. Completely opposite of what Paul's internal plan was. That's how bad things had gotten. And then when preparations to run the ship ashore were underway, the ship got stuck on a reef. It was being broken apart by the waves. And there's even more peril. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Was Paul a prisoner? Paul was one of those prisoners. And why do the Roman soldiers want to put them all to death? Well, they don't want them to swim away and get away. Why? If, I mentioned this before, in Roman law, if you were holding someone in custody that you've arrested, that you've imprisoned, that you've jailed, that you're bringing to trial, bringing to court, you are responsible for that person's life. And if that person dies or gets away, what happens to you? You die. You die. On the spot, you're executed. We can't let one of these guys get away. And word get out that eventually, you know, we took this grain ship. We throw the grain away, by the way. We lost all the money that we could have made on the ship. And we, and we let some, some, some prisoners get away. Here's an idea. Let's put them all to death. Who's ever going to know? The shark's going to eat them up. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Lest they should swim away and escape. Now, who saved his life? Who saved his life? God saved Paul's life. But how did God save Paul's life? Pastor Julius? Pagan, right? A Roman. This is the second time now. Claudius Lysias, the, the head of the soldiers in Jerusalem, saved Paul from the mob. That was the great irony we saw. The Jewish crowds who said that 
they upheld the law, you shall not murder. They wanted to murder Paul, and the unbeliever saved. The unbeliever saved him. And now again, this centurion Julius saved his life, protected him, and told Paul to jump overboard. We see verse 43 and 44. And then, as they get to the island, they're saved, and the people are acting so nice to them. It's raining, it's cold, and, and they actually start up a fire. And so Paul says, I'm going to help out with the fire, and I'm going to get some, uh, some more sticks. And he gathers the sticks, he throws them in the fire, and because the uh, the fire got so hot and it got warm. A, a viper, a snake, jumps out and latches onto his hands. Right? Out of the fire into the frying pan, as we say. You know? And the fact that he didn't die. They, they all said he was going to die. This must have been some poisonous viper that everyone knew. That thing bites you, you're dead. Okay, you didn't die initially, but you know, you're, you're going to swell up, you're going to keel over and die any minute, and they're watching him. You know, the goddess DK really must have it in for this guy. He got away from, he got away from, uh, uh, from Neptune, the god of the sea, and now DK is after him. Miraculously, he survives. So he survived two mobs. He survived a shipwreck. He survived a poisonous viper, whatever it was. Why? Because God had said this is how he's going to get him to Rome. So there's something really important for us there. Again, it's easy for us to think theologically about God's providence, and you know, we do a good job of that as, as, as a church, we think about God's providence, big, big theology terms. But what's really hard to do is think of that practically, practically, personally. I've said it over and over and over again that theology must become biography. Sometimes we say, you know, the things that we have in our head, they have to trickle down into our hearts. Theology must become biography. It's not enough, and it's not good enough for you and for me to know certain things. Those things have to affect us, affect us, change us, cause us to love God more and cling to him more and live it out in a life of faith and good deeds towards our neighbor. And Paul's road to Rome his heart's desire, and God's own promise to him that you must testify in Rome. The road, we might say, to that glorious end must take the winding, long path of suffering. Paul had to learn this. Paul had to learn this. Paul told the churches all the way back in chapter 14, in his first missionary journey, he told the churches, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And the great thing is that we see Paul, the preacher, as also Paul, the parishioner. Paul had to learn the things he preached. Through many tribulations, he's now entering that glorious, everlasting kingdom. So our theology must become our biography. I don't know anyone here needs to hear that, but uh, I'm sure a few of us do, right? A few of us do. So what's the bridge between this theology that's in our head and the experience, the biography of our hearts? What's the thing that bridges those two things together? The first point that God is working out in human history, his eternal providential plan and purpose for all things. And then that comes in very personal ways here in Paul's experience in life. And what what bridges those two things? Well, look at chapter 27. 
verse 23. The thing, better, better the person, who unites these two big, th- this, this big idea to this very practical idea is the presence of God himself. The presence of the Lord. He tells these people on the ship, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's the same thing that Jesus told him before. This angel of the God whom I, to whom I belong and whom I worship is giving the same message that Christ gave. It's the presence of God. The presence of God. This angel of God is bringing the message of God and standing right before Paul. Notice the presence, the personal presence of God. And he describes this God as the God to whom I belong. It's not just the God that I know about, the God that I think about, the God that I preach to others, the one to whom I belong. His only comfort in life and death was that he belonged to Jesus Christ. And then he tells these pagans, these these fellow these fellow men who are arrested who are incarcerated along with him and along with those who are caring for them and overseeing their lives. He tells all the people on that ship, notice, verse 34, take some food, it will give you strength. Why? For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now that's Paul telling that to a bunch of pagans. Not a hair will fall from your head. What does that sound like to you? That little phrase there. Look again at verse 34. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Does that saying sound familiar to you from somewhere else in the New Testament? Who said that? Who said that very thing? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do not worry about the things you're going to wear, the things you're going to eat, and so forth. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of the Father. In heaven. And now he's saying that very personally to even these unbelievers. Not a hair is going to fall from your head. So, this pre- the Lord's presence, the Lord appears to him right in front of him, speaks to him, even says that they are going to be saved, and even the hairs of their head will be kept preserved because of his presence. And then they celebrate this meal. It's not the Lord's Supper, but it, it, it's, it, 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 it's a meal of, uh, but he describes it. In these Lord's Supper-esque kind of terms, notice that. They're eating just bread. They're trying to survive and have some energy to swim ashore. But we might say Paul is Paul's living so in the presence of God, so coram Deo, that even as he eats an ordinary meal with unbelieving people, it's as if the Lord's right there with him. He takes the bread. He gives thanks to God. In the presence of all of them. He breaks it. He eats. And they eat too. He's so in the presence of God. Every moment that even an ordinary meal is a meal of thanks to God. So isn't it really amazing here that through all the sufferings of 
the sufferings that the Lord himself demonstrates to us in this story. Through sufferings here, we find the presence of the Lord with Paul. Through Paul's sufferings, we see that Paul's history is God's story. And through sufferings, God's own story includes us, includes our story as his his followers, his servants. And even when the Lord brings tremendous suffering into the life of Paul here and all those around him and, and with you and me too, and even when we face something as drastic as a shipwreck, Paul teaches us that you and I shouldn't be downcast. I say shouldn't because we're human after all. We're going to feel downcast. We're going to feel abandoned by God at times. We shouldn't, but we do feel that. But even if we do feel that, even if we do feel abandoned by God, he's allowed my life, as it were, to be a shipwreck. And I'm I'm floating on the smallest piece of wood that there's no way this thing's going to uphold me. No way. But yet, here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says in one of his letters. You probably know the letter. If I start reading it, you'll know where it comes from. Here's how Paul described his confidence. Though he's shipwrecked, he's not downcast. Why? What then shall we say to these things? God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Any of those things describe our story here? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including a shipwreck, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Our great God, our gracious God, we thank you for the story of your words, your own story as you work it out in human history. And we know that you are bringing all things to a close in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he wins in the end. We know that nothing can separate us from you. But Lord, in the meantime, when we feel downcast, we feel depressed, we feel abandoned. Uh, Lord, we feel that your, uh, your, your promises aren't really coming true. Help us to remember that the whole history of the entire universe is the history of your own work, and that that grand work is true of us, of me personally, that you're active and living and you're present. Just as you were present with Paul on that ship, you're present with us, no matter where we go today or tomorrow. Give us that confidence. And Lord, as confident believers confident in you. Lord, maybe, may we be a bold witness this coming week 
to someone, Lord, who needs to see someone with confidence living in the world. Spur them, Lord, to ask why. What's the hope? Why are you so confident? Why are you so uh, expectant that the Lord is with you? Why? Give us, Lord, that ready answer. That it's because of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his life given to us already, that we can go forth with confidence no matter what the world brings against us. And so help us, we pray now, as we come to this Lord's Supper, this Lord's table, be present with us. Uh, Feed us, we pray. Grant us to be receptive and to know your presence amongst us here, that you care for us, and that not even a hair can fall from, from our heads without your will. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask that you would receive our prayer now. We ask all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's turn together on the back side of that uh, song insert that's in the bulletin this morning. I know that my Redeemer lives is the title. There's four verses. Let's stand up and give the Lord praise. <laughs>